Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of June 6th, 2022. On this week's show, we'll chat about the first two games of the NBA Finals, which were won by different teams. Keep listening to find out who. We'll also be joined by Andrew Das of the New York Times to talk about the Ukraine men's national team's quest to make the World Cup, which ran aground against Wales on Sunday. And finally, we'll discuss the most dominant team in all of sports the Oklahoma University softballing Sooners. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Also in D.C. is Stefan Fatsis. He was played by Emil Hirsch in Into the Wild and Outside, by Jodie Foster in A Few Seconds of Panic Room, and naturally by Haley Mills and Haley Mills in Word Freaky Friday. <laughs> you spent a lot of time on that, didn't you? Not more than 40, 45 seconds. I'm flattered nonetheless. With us from California's Bay Area, making us whole again, father of the fastest, soon-to-be 10-week-old in America, the Slate staff writer and slow burn host, Joel Anderson. Hey, Joel. Hey, once we can get those legs moving, nothing can stop him. I'm certain of it. He's built really well, too. He's got a big barrel chest. Mm -hmm. I'm impressed. Mm -hmm. I mean, are there there times for like a 10-month-old crawl, like the 10-yard crawl or something? Oh, we're already well, at right. the 10-month-old crawl. Well, right. we got to like get it. there. I mean, he's got to <laughs> learn how to crawl first. I mean, Eventually, I'm sure he's an overachiever, yeah. but he's only like, what, eight weeks old? Yeah, eight weeks old. He can follow things. I, I've taught him how to point, I think. I really do believe I've taught him how to point. <laughs> uh, and uh, he can hold his head up for an extraordinarily amount, long amount of time. So, uh, you know, I mean, crawling, I, I think it's reasonable to think he'll be really competitive at that in a few short weeks. You got to look out for sign stealing now. You got to, you got to, you know, teach them how to wave things off. Um, <laughs> before we move on, well, we should revel in the fact that all three of us are together. Revel, revel, revel. All right, reveling done. Um, everybody <laughs> should listen to the new season of Slow Burn on the lead up to Roe v. Wade. Uh, Susan Matthews joins Joel Anderson and Josh Levine, among among others, in the. Uh, Slow Burn hosting chair. It's a really great season, um, obviously. Extremely on the news. Folks should check it out. Near the end of the third quarter, the damage had mostly been done. The Golden State Warriors were almost through with their historic ass-kicking of the Celtics, turning a two-point halftime lead into a 20-point advantage with only a few seconds left. Then Warriors guard Jordan Poole ended up with the ball in his hands. Poole dribbled across the half-court line, crossed over a defender, and pulled up from 39 feet with about a second and a half left on the clock. And here's what happened next. In the next clip, we've got Jacques Moncler of BN Sports France on the call. Mais comment, comment c'est possible 
They don't. Literally translates to in. And it's worth noting Montclair actually called in before the shot even touched the net. But that's the kind of night it was for the Dubs in Game 2 of the NBA Finals. A game they won 107-88 to to even the series at 1-1. It was a stirring rebound from their Game 1 loss when they squandered a double-digit third-quarter lead only to lose by 12. The Finals moved to Boston for Games 3 and 4, and somehow it feels we know even less about what might happen than we did before the games were even played. So, Stefan, welcome back. And what, if anything, do you think Game 2 tells us about the Warriors? Do you feel this was a return to championship form, or did the Celtics simply gag one away? Before I answer that, I just want to give credit to Timothy Burke, who puts together these foreign clips, foreign calls of sports moments. I don't know where we would be without this. This has enriched my life enormously in the last few years, so thank you. I knew you would like that. I knew I knew you would like that. Oh, so I that love those. I listen to everyone whenever he posts. Anyway, Boston committed 19 turnovers, leading to 33 Golden State points. That's a lot of turnovers, I'm told. After a news cycle of glowing profiles about the Celtics' ageless Al Horford, he scored two points and took just two <laughs> shots. Boston's central non-stars didn't do anything. Horford, Marcus Smart, Grant Williams, 10 points combined. I don't know enough about basketball play design to know if the Celtics just had a shitty night or whether the Warriors' adjustments after gagging a double-digit lead in about 30 seconds in Game 1 forced them to have one. Probably the usual combination of those things. But Steve Kerr did talk afterward about how the Warriors had to play with more intensity, how they played man-to-man defense instead of zone to impose physicality on the game. And as part of that change... Kerr put Draymond Green on Jalen Brown, who shot five for 17 and was hounded into some of those turnovers. Clay Thompson covered Horford, which meant Horford wasn't getting open looks for threes, which killed the Warriors in game one. And the Warriors generally were obviously more aggressive on defense. I mean, did you watch that replay of Green pushing three Celtics into the paint on one play, freeing Steph Curry for a three off of a screen? Curry had 29 points. He was popping off open screens all night, making long threes got to sit out the fourth quarter, and that ends my strategic analysis. Josh, the turning point in the game might have been a play involving Green that had nothing to do with his defensive assignment, him not getting a second technical foul in the second quarter after he fouled Brown shooting a three, and they got tangled up on the floor and exchanged feet and arms the way that Draymond Green exchanges feet and arms with other players. Should he have gotten a second tech, or was this playoff officiating? Draymond was asked about this uh, on ESPN after the game um, about the kind of treatment he gets from referees. And I thought his answer was really interesting. Let's listen to that. That is, but it's the NBA Finals. And, um, you know, like I said, I wear my badge of honor. It's not that I'm saying they necessarily treat me different. I've earned differential treatment, and I enjoy that. I embrace that. But I'm never going to let someone stand over me. I'm a man first. My kids are in the stands. I don't, I don't play by, like those type of games. And so whatever happens at that point happens. Right, fair it wasn't entirely clear to me what he meant by I've earned differential treatment because I've seen people arguing it both ways, Joel, that um, he gets kind of teed up more quickly than other players do. But in, in this case, I saw a couple of people making the kind of fascinating argument that he got a technical foul early in the game intentionally because he knew that the referees would kind of know 
that um, giving him a second would eject him from the game and that that would be bad and it would have a negative uh, effect and people would be angry at the refs. And so they kind of swallowed the whistle, which enabled him to just like go completely ham for the entire rest <laughs> of the game, try to pull down Jalen Brown shorts and, and all that <laughs> stuff. I mean, the thing that's great about Draymond is he tells you exactly what he's going to do. He said in between <laughs> the games, um, essentially, I was terrible in game one. I need to come out with more intensity and like be myself. And what that so often means is just like fucking with the other team. Mm -hmm. And he succeeded in that. Like how much of an effect that had on the final outcome. Maybe it's overstated, but like it's clearly what everyone was talking about after the game. Everyone was talking about it and to him and at him during the game too, Joel. Yeah, it's kind of shocking because we're talking about a guy that had a line of 975, right? Um, and normally that's not the person you think of as having the big impact on the game. But on after two the of game, three shooting. <laughs> on two of three shooting, right. And But after the game, even people that were on the courts seemed to say that it was Draymond who set the tone for the game, which is a, one, a remarkable 180 from the tone after game one because it wasn't just that he looked bad and that the Warriors lost and that they didn't bring a lot of energy. But there were people who, you know, from Zach Lowe to whoever else, people that cover the, these games that were saying, man, Draymond may not be playable, right? That the the Celtics weren't even guarding him. And they let him shoot 12 times in the first game. Um, and they're like, well, whenever he's shooting that much, I mean, that's exactly what the defense wants you to do. And so there was this sense that, man, you know, maybe the Warriors have lost it and Draymond is really going to be the death of them. And then all of a sudden... One game later, he says, I've got to play better. You know, I've got to turn it up. And he does that. He does exactly what he said he was going to do. And, you know, I, to, to your point about, um, you know, whether he's, you know, he was ever going to get that second technical. I guess because I live in the Bay, I see the Warriors a fair amount. I mean, they're on national TV, so it's not like I'm doing anything special. But, you know, I get a chance to see him probably a little bit more regularly than people on the East Coast. And... One recurring theme is that Draymond is always pressing on the line and he gets to talk to the officials in a way that not very many other players get to. Um, that like he, like that's something like it's, it's remarkable that he was doing it in the finals and he was willing to risk it with only with a technical already, but. Him it's not like he's the, ever been ejected and a uh, consequential or suspended <laughs> in the finals before having anything to do with kicking anyone in the nuts. Well, and, and uh, the, right. the interesting thing was that Joe Varden had a good piece in The Athletic arguing that. The Celtics screwed up after mm -hmm. that altercation with Jalen yep. Brown. They were grabbing Draymond, somebody on the Celtics, um, sort of grabbed him from behind. It was Marcus Smart, I think, Smart. wrapped him mm -hmm. up and pulled him away. And he should have just let him go because um, that would have been more likely to draw the second tech. Jalen Brown had been wearing looser shorts. Yes. I think. <laughs> he would have been ejected uh clearly that was a, a big strategic uh mistake on his and i think brown and brown said that he wasn't aware that green had one tech so that could affect bad bad situational awareness there on jalen brown's part how could he have forgotten that i'm kind of surprised that he didn't that they didn't know that um, everyone should but. just assume that draymond kind of walks into the building <laughs> with the technical i mean this is a pattern of his entire career and part of it is a media narrative of, of burying him every time he doesn't play well because his contributions are so often hard to quantify, um, except when he's shooting two for 12, which is easy to quantify. And so it's easy to say, this guy sucks and is the reason that they lost. But it's 
It's happened in the finals before against Cleveland at various points where he's looked useless on the court and then come back and been an obvious linchpin to their team success. And so, yeah, part of that is just independent of of him and anything he does. It's just um, opinions of him kind of range very widely. I mean, you hear people saying he should should be a first ballot Hall of Famer. He has no business in the Hall of Fame. And anyway, but also part of this is of his own creation. Part of the narrative of the whole Warriors comeback is of him playing like crap in the year when, you know, they missed the play-in game and him kind of being back at his defensive player of the year level this year, being the kind of aggressive, uh, you know, fast kind of uh, Draymond that we've seen in the past. And and so we should be smart enough to know that this is just going to be a, a cycle um, throughout his career. A guy that can't score. It's much more difficult to quantify whatever their contributions are going to be. And I mean, a guy and a guy that looks like he does when he shoots, right? Um, so people are always going to sort of doubt that guy. But it's silly because after that game, I remember thinking, I was like, do you think Al Horford thinks that Draymond Green is better than him? You know what I mean? Like, I was just trying to, I was like, well, I mean, it's, I mean, that kind of seems like a wash, but like in retrospect, it seems sort of foolish. But in a testament to that is that we always talk about Steph, we talk about Clay, we talk about like the Warriors' offensive brilliance, but we kind of overlook how good they are at defense. They were the league's second best defense throughout the year, and the linchpin of that is Draymond Green. And like it's just real easy to talk about missing shots and how somebody's playing on offense, but the part of that is that there's defense on the other end of that. And Draymond heads up that defense. And that is what a lot of the Warriors run over these last few years has been based on. That they're an extraordinarily good defensive team as well. Well, they gave up 88 points in this game. And, you know, after three quarters, the Celtics had 64 points. Um, And, I mean, it it is interesting to me. These guys play so many games and so many games as a unit. And they've been together for so many years. And then you hear Steve Kerr talk about, after the game, how they made these these technical switches, these changes in assignments and changes in structure on defense, and it yielded these results. And part of me thinks, like, how is that even possible? <laughs> you do this all the time, every day, and yet the results change because you make these um, technical recalculations, recalibrations in the middle of a, of a series against the same team. It really is fascinating, and, and there's some, you know, some writers that do great breakdowns of the video to demonstrate how that happens. And there was some really good stuff after this game showing how on both defense and offense, the Warriors shifted um, to free up Steph and have him be less hounded and banged around uh, by the Celtics on defense. And a lot of that was Draymond Green there too. The thing that these playoffs have made me appreciate, um, it's sort of the opposite of the instant analysis that you see so often after these games about whether certain guys are playable or, you know, this guy, you know, whether it's Jason Tatum, who was three of 17 in, ga- in game one, or Draymond or Clay in game two, who was just awful, four of, of 19. Um, you know, this guy needs to step up everything that we're, that we're used to hearing. But um, I just am kind of blown away <laughs> repeatedly by the level of skill and talent in the NBA. These days, mm-hmm. and Jordan Poole is just a great example of that because um, kind of the opposite of of Draymond Green um, and that, 
or, or maybe maybe there's a similarity here. I can't decide if it's ex- the exact same or the opposite. <laughs> Just so easy to quantify his contribution because it comes um, in the points uh, category <laughs> in the box score. I mean, he he does do some playmaking, but um, there were moments in game one where you know, as and I I think not somebody who's like totally uh, oblivious to what's going on in the court in a tactical way. You're like, this guy really shouldn't be on the court. Like he's not contributing anything. Def- he's a, a net negative defensively. And if he's not making shots, you just like, you know, get like Otto Porter, Iguodala, if he's healthy, or Gary Payton, the second in this game, get somebody out on the court who who can defend their their position. But then, you know, it's it didn't it didn't take the French to appreciate what he was able to do in this game. And he is somebody who just has an incredible skill level and was able to, you know, help the Warriors not just in the regular season, but in the first round of the playoffs against the Nuggets when Steph was out and then just look at the the Celtics. I mean, it's not just Tatum and Brown, but Horford did have 26 in game one. Derek White had 21 in game one. Marcus Smart has been their best player in very many playoff games. I mean, it's kind of a uh, become a little bit of a joke on NBA Twitter. But like Peyton Pritchard is really fucking talented guy. Like <laughs> he can heat up and make shots, and um, it's. It, it's easy to focus on, you know, Horford being so, you know, not not making shots, Clay not making shots. But like, let's leave ourselves open to the magic and the majesty of like how many of these guys are good in different games. Mm. You you say that, Josh, but then I was thinking, you know, maybe midway through the third, early in the fourth. But I'm thinking at that point of the game, I don't know if I've ever seen a worse dribbling elite team than the Boston Celtics. <laughs> You're right? Like, I mean, just Get us dribbling back. in the Get traffic. Get us back on the ground here. I was in the throwing, clouds. I mean, Thank throwing you. the ball away. I'm just like, who? I don't understand why. I mean, to be that, I don't I don't even know if it's that they're casual with the ball or if they're incapable Get in the gym. of making plays. What's wrong with you? You got to practice. You got to... I mean, you got to do those I mean, Maravich drills. I mean, yeah, we're kicking. They can't. I mean, they they practiced with Kyrie for at least a year. I mean, they didn't pick <laughs> up anything. I mean, well, but, maybe they thought like, well, this guy, everything this guy seems does is wrong headed. So maybe <laughs> dribbling is a bad idea. I, mean, I got to say that, that maybe they didn't watch any of the spelling bee coverage this past week. There were some. They had Zalia avant garde, the the, mm. the girl that oh, won last year, see? and we got to see more of her dribbling skills. She wants See? to play in the WNBA. She's got some. Yeah. She's got some dribbling skills. Maybe the Celtics need to bring her in before Game Three, Joel. I mean, seriously. I mean, I mean, the thing is, is that any team that is depending, and I'm not saying this because he's from Dallas, but I mean, Buck is smart. Any team that is depending on Marcus Smart to get them into their offense, it's just it's going to be it's going to look like this. Like you're going to think one game, wow, they're so physical and they've got a lot of length and a lot of talent. And, you know, they really play well together. And then on another game, you'll be like, well, man, this is some middle school shit. Like, they just can't, they just can't beat people off the dribble and, and hit somebody outside, outside waiting on the arc because they just are incapable of running a clean offense with that guy at the head of it. So, um, and yeah, Marcus Smart, what a great player. I mean, he, he's like the, He's kind of like what Draymond would be if he took it down like maybe three quarters of a notch. Like, Mm -hmm. you don't ever get the sense that Marcus Smart, is ever out of control. Like he does uh-huh. all the Draymond shit, but like with with um, uh, yeah, like a tend more self control. You guys making a face at me? 
it, it's a, it's a funny it's funny you say that because I mean the thing that he was most known for in college is going after a fan in the stands, right? But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you if you read about what the fans said to him, then That's I, fair. Fair I, I, I think uh, I think you would ag- maybe agree with his decision. But like the only <laughs> player who's been consistent in his goodness in the first two games is Steph Curry, which yep. he's Steph Curry. I mean, Steph Curry wasn't consistent in the finals. I mean, he's never won Finals MVP, famously. Um, right. But it kind of shows where he's where he's at in the arc of his career here. Um, but the reason why this is a good series, a great series, uh, hopefully, um, is that you have players like Jason Tatum, like Jalen Brown, who we know are amazing and yet are um, not able to do everything they want to do on the court because of what the other team is doing. Um, it's not because they um, are not meeting the moment. Um, it's because whether it's tactical adjustments, whether it's just because Draymond Green is really fucking good at defense, um, it's just not easy. It's the finals. I don't want to undersell the impact of the two best defensive teams playing in the finals. Like what what impact that has on the the, the results that we're seeing out there? That how much more difficult it's going to be when you're playing against teams that will impose their will on you through defense. But uh, let me be the Debbie Downey here for just a second. Like, don't you think that these are a couple of the most underwhelming finals teams we've seen in, in, so, in sort of uh, in recent memory, right? Like, Steph is obviously a superstar, but he's not the Steph Curry of 2016. Jason Tatum is a first, all first team NBA player. But I don't feel like he's a guy that you like consistently look to every night that guy's going to score 30. Like, he's just not that guy like he's not Kevin Durant in that way so I don't know um I mean this 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 series always just sort of goes by my theory that like you know somebody has to win a championship every year it may not be the best team you've ever seen they may not stack up that somebody has to win the championship every year (laughs) I think that theory has been born out we don't have to fair point (laughs) we don't have to make every team that wins a championship a great team like sometimes sometimes teams just win championships uh, and that this just happens to be one of those years. Well, right? Toronto uh, just won a championship too, right? What's missing here is there's no KD, there's no Giannis, there's no dominant force that we can say is... Well, Kawhi was that guy that year, right? Yeah, he's not Giannis, though. He's not KD. No, he was great. Like, well, yeah, I, mean, he, he, yeah, I mean, he was up until, you know, his body started falling apart. But yeah, I, I hear you. I think that um, the Warriors are not the Durant Warriors, but they are the war. You know, they're they're largely the the team, the one before Durant that people were celebrating as. You know, they won they won seventy two games in a regular season without, without just Durant. older and with Clay being horrible. And but, didn't we? You know. And didn't we? Didn't we have a conversation not too long ago about sort of how super teams aren't where it's at? Yeah, I I would push back on the Celtics piece of this because I think um, it's just a different flavor of team. Well, we had the super team stuff, but then we also had like a mini generation of Cleveland teams that were like LeBron and just a bunch of dudes. Mm -hmm, And I think that the Celtics team is a lot more interesting and fun to watch than that. And I say it then. And I say that as being like a huge LeBron fan. And I also just don't think Curry is not uh, as good as he was in 2016. I mean, maybe he's not as good as he was in 2016, but in that it's hard to like look at game one and game two and, and look at what that guy has done and be like, eh, used to be better. (laughs) In the next segment, we'll have on Andrew Das of the New York Times, who was in Wales on Sunday for Ukraine's World Cup playoff match.
Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Until last week, Ukraine's men's national soccer team hadn't played a competitive match in more than six months. Most of its players had been without any competition since February when the domestic league shut down after the Russian invasion. The team's 64-year-old coach volunteered for military duty. The offer was declined. And its star player took a leave of absence from his Premier League club to rescue his wife and children who had fled to Poland. And yet, after beating Scotland 3-1 in Glasgow last Wednesday, Ukraine was on the cusp of claiming the last European slot in the World Cup Finals later this year in Qatar. It needed one more win against Wales in Cardiff on Sunday, but despite pretty much the entire soccer world except the Welsh rooting for them, Ukraine lost one to nothing. Andrew Doss is the international sports editor of the New York Times. He was at and covered the game in Cardiff, and he joins us now from London. Hey, Andrew. Hi, Stefan. Thank you for having me. Thank you for doing it. I am really hard-pressed to think of a single sports match with greater emotional resonance than this one. And it was a really good game, too. What was the atmosphere like inside Cardiff City Stadium? It was uh, electric in, in a word. It was among the probably top two or three sports experiences I've had in my lifetime. It was the stakes and the emotion and the passion and the sound. It's not a big place, but it was just, it was a phenomenal experience. And oddly for both sides, even though one of them got crushed, in the, their hopes crushed in the end. How did you feel like the Welsh players and the Welsh fans handled what was a, a truly bizarre circumstance where they were desperate to win and make the World Cup for the first time in more than a half century, but were also incredibly empathetic to what the Ukrainian team and the nation were going through. Yeah, I think that's really important to remember is this was an incredibly important day for Wales, Ukraine aside, and, and they were open about that all week, you know, and they had been waiting three months for this. Their semifinal playoff game went ahead in March. So they've been waiting, waiting, waiting for this game. And it's not their fault that they were cast in the role as, as, as villains in some sense yesterday in that they were in the path of Ukraine in this great story. But Wales is such a good story in its own right. And you forget that people come to these games with their own perspectives and their own missions. And the players talked about that. They said, look, we care for these people. It's terrible and it's wrong what's happened to them. But this is a game and we want to go to the World Cup too. And they were upfront about that all along. And I think they were honest about it. It, it They had really kind of compartmentalized their feelings about about the game and the matchup and the opponent in a way that allowed them to perform yesterday. And, and of course, the crowd just carried them on because they all felt the same way. Andrew, you talk about the electric atmosphere, and obviously there's all of this buildup, all of these stakes. And in fact, one of the Ukrainian defenders said, you know, this is the most 
important game of our lives um, going into it. So at least early on, before, you know, we talk about the, the, the final result there, how did you think that they handled the environment? How did you think they looked um, early on in the game? Wales or Ukraine, are you asking? Ukraine. You know, I, that was one of the things I thought about. You know, the, the game in Scotland was such an emotional thing. And, and Rory Smith, our soccer columnist, wrote about it at the time. He said, Ukraine seemed oddly cool in that game. They were in complete control. They had, they had been able to um, control their own emotions in a way that they just kind of took Scotland apart a little bit. And um, and the game was a little closer in the last 20 minutes. They scored on almost the last kick of the game for 3-1. But they always thought, I think, that they were going to win. And so you wondered, you know, four days later, is there going to be this emotional letdown? What if they fall behind? You know, how will they respond? And they did fall behind. You know, they came to play. And Wales came at them from the start, you know, pushing, pushing, pushing. Um but they traded punches and they had some chances and then Wales scored in this just unbelievably cruel way on an own goal. And you wondered in that moment if if this was the end of the line, if all of it would catch up to Ukraine. And they and they didn't. You know, they got themselves into the locker room at one nil and then they came out in the second half and they just really, really pressed. They had great chances again and again and and right down to the last couple of minutes. And it just gave you a sense that this is, this was so important. This whole mission of this was so important to them that they somehow summoned even more when it would have been understandable if it had just all come crashing down on them. And I read a bunch of uh, coverage of the Ukrainian team leading up to this um, match or these two matches in the last week. And what really struck me is, and I think that most sports fans, most soccer fans, wouldn't have been aware of just how how connected to the war every one of these players was. I mean, you think international soccer players, they're playing for big teams. And look, there are a couple of Ukrainians in the Premier League that were on this field that played for West Ham and played for Manchester City. But a lot of the players here played for domestic clubs. A lot of these players stayed in Ukraine for these past few months until the team was able to gather in Slovenia to train and get ready for these two final matches. Um, the depth of their despair and just reading the quotations from the players was so palpable for them to go out and play as well as they did. And frankly, they dominated this game. They were the better team and had more chances to score. And, you know, their coach said afterward, um, you know, we did everything we could. I want to say sorry that we didn't score, but this is sport. And I just can't imagine the letdown for these players. I mean, it did feel like the buildup, and maybe this is just the media, but the buildup of the importance of this match for the country to send a message to the world and to have Ukraine at the World Cup in November and December. Whew, what a what a what a sort of awful way to end. It's just so sad, it feels like. Uh, it 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 really is just such a painful thing for them. They had made no secret of the fact that they saw this as their role. They are young, able-bodied men, and those kind of people were actually barred from leaving Ukraine at the start. They didn't want all the men fleeing, and and so the Shakhtar and the Dinamo Kiev guys had to stay at the beginning because they didn't have permission to leave the country. They had to decide: Do I send my family out and stay? 
do we stick together and try and ride this out as a group? And Shakhtar had to kind of get its whole team together and, and they hustled them all out on trains. But Brazilians and Argentines and all the foreign players went, but then they got the Ukrainians out first. And the, even the teams kind of came together to get these players out. But you had players, you know, um, Tara Stepanenko, the, the midfielder, he hid the first night of the bombing. He hid in his basement with his family while the bombs fell around them. And other players hid in a parking garage. And one player had to, you know, his wife had a baby in the first days of the war. And then they had to figure out how they were going to get out. And the coach Petrikov famously volunteered the day after the war started to, and they told him, look, you have a role to play here. And it is not that role, <laughs> you know, get us to the World Cup, do your best in that role. And so they embrace this as a chance to kind of carry Ukraine's message on a very high profile stage to be this prominent symbol of the country succeeding in the face of all these other things, all these hardships and death and dying. And they talked about it all the time. And it just must have been just crushing pressure. And I cannot imagine what it felt like to lose that game when you had gotten so close. And the thing I don't think I had really appreciated until I read your piece and some of these other pieces, Andrew, is that a huge part of the significance of this team is the fact that the whole kind of Russian project here is to erase Ukrainian cultural identity. And this being... Um, both kind of domestically in Ukraine and also internationally, maybe the biggest marker of Ukrainian national identity, this team, these players, um, both because of the color of the uniform that they wear, but also what they represent, the kind of indomitability um, and this notion that like, you know, we're, we're here, we're not going anywhere, um, despite the obstacles that have been put in front of us we're going to continue to play to represent our country. And I think you alluded, you both alluded to this, but the thing that feels the saddest here isn't um, the loss in this game to me. It's the fact that um, just inevitably, because of the way that sports get written and talked about, we won't be talking about them, um, this, this team in November and December. And we would have been talking about them a huge amount in the months leading up and during the event. And that's just such a, a missed opportunity. Yeah, it really is. One of the Ukrainian journalists got up during the press conference and instead of asking a question, basically addressed the room and said, please, you know, don't forget about us and don't stop writing about us and don't stop thinking about what our country's going through. And so they understood the consequences of failure. You know, international soccer is the one thing in the World Cup in particular is the one thing that kind of is one of these few things like the Olympics where the world still comes together around a single thing. You know, I figure it's the Olympics, the World Cup and the UN General Assembly are the only things left in the world that everybody cares about. And, and so, um, to miss your chance to step onto that stage to take your story to that next level over the next few months and definitely during the World Cup in November was really painful for them. Uh, but, you know, it was a chance. It, but every time they play now, and they'll play Nations League and they'll play other games, every time they play is another chance to 
have the Ukrainian flag on, on television and to play the Ukrainian anthem. And, and for people who have to realistically consider if there will be a Ukraine in four years for the next World Cup cycle, it is so vitally important to them to kind of to fight for what the country represents. And, and I don't think we as Americans can really understand the idea that your country might cease to exist if Russia just subsumes it and takes, it's already taken chunks of it off in previous invasions. And the goal, you know, you have to wonder if it was just to take it all back and pull it back into Russia. Andrew, outside of the current geopolitical context, like Ukraine's soccer program is relatively young, right? Like it's only existed since 1992, only qualified for the World Cup once before in 2006. So, I mean... Obviously, yesterday is a crushing blow. Um, you know, it would, as we've mentioned, it would have been better for them uh, if they'd been playing in the World Cup. But what would have been appropriate expectations for this team, you know, not even considering that they had all of this hanging over them, like all of these expectations and then just the, the difficulty in preparations? Um, what, would have, what would have been an appropriate amount of expectations for this program? Honestly, had they gotten into the World Cup, you know, they would have dropped into that group with the U.S. and Iran and England. There's no reason to think they couldn't have survived that group and gotten to the group stage. They would have shown and they did show against Scotland what they're capable. They're capable of controlling a game. They have really good players. You know, Yaremchuk plays at Benfica and Yarmolenko plays in the Premier League and Zinchenko just won a Premier League title. They have good players and they have always had good players. You know, Andrei Shevchenko was a world player of the year. And even the Russian teams in the Soviet teams back in the day relied on Ukrainian players. While there's not a tradition of independent Ukrainian soccer, there is a tradition of soccer in that country that goes back generations. What this also exposed and what, what it forced soccer's governing bodies to do is take a side here. Um, FIFA and UEFA had to make a choice when this invasion began, and they chose after cozying up to Russia for so many years. Let's not forget, Russia hosted the World Cup in 2018, and FIFA has not been shy about going after Russian investment in the sport, um, as we've seen with the oligarchs that own um, major clubs. Um, and FIFA and UEFA, the European governing body, kicked Russia out. Um, FIFA kicked them out of World Cup qualifying. They were still alive uh, when when this when the invasion began. It allowed Ukraine to sort of play these playoff games when they were ready to. But in the end, I still can't help feel like what's happened here exposes in this sport too just how um, how solicitous world sports governing bodies have been of Russia, dis despite clear signs that they shouldn't be so so close. Yeah, and disentangling soccer from Russia will be harder than people think. I mean, sanctions did it at Chelsea, and uh, but cutting off the flow of Gazprom money was a big deal. There was a lot, a lot of money in those sponsorships at Schalke with UEFA, the Champions League. Uh, they moved the Champions League final out of Russia immediately after the invasion. Uh, but you know, Russia is still a member of UEFA, and they well, they're not allowed to play anybody, but um, they are. Their influence continues, not just in soccer, but in every every sport. And 
so many sports down to from biathlon to chess to everything. And, and disentangling Russia from world sports was easy in the moment, but it may be harder than people think moving forward. One of the kind of recurring themes um, that we talk about on this show is about how sports breeds immorality or at least manifests immorality or human weakness. Um, and I feel like this is an event and a game that um, wh- where it's okay to make grand s- sweeping statements. If if not this, then 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 what? Um, this feels like a game and an event, Andrew, that actually makes the case for sports and why and how sports can be good. Um, and we've hit on a, a bunch of them, but um, you see it in what the team means to the people of, of Ukraine. You see it in how sports in a positive way can be an ex- exemplar of national character. You see it in how the team was received in Wales and how competitiveness and competitive spirit was allowed to live alongside true like empathy. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm just wondering if you felt all that being in the stadium and have anything to add to that. It was a remarkable atmosphere. And given the stakes and what was at play here for both teams and both countries and what they brought in, Ukraine's story is obvious, but Wales hadn't been in the World Cup since 1958 and they desperately, desperately wanted to go. And they're in this little resurgence. They've been to the Euros twice in a row. They have a great player in Bale. And they thought that this is their chance. And, and talking to Wales fans before the game, they talked about Look, you know, this is really important to them, maybe more important to them than us, but not today because it's also important to us. And, and so when the entire stadium is just singing this, this folk song before the game, it's called, uh, Yimo Ohid. And it, it, it's become this anthem. It's this nationalist song, but the chorus is translates as we're still here. And it felt like, that was the vibe that Wales brought to this game is that you have this sense of mission, but we're still here and we can overcome that and we have our own story to tell. It was just so amazing to see it, but then there was no trouble at all in the game. It was exactly what international soccer can be and should be in its best days. You know, when the game was over, the Ukrainians were crushed and they went over to their fans and applauded them. And they do this big Viking clap that a lot of teams do, but the whole stadium did it with them. And then when the Ukrainians kind of trudged off, Wales's team went over and saluted the Ukrainian fans. And so it was just this really powerful day just showing, uh, you know, what it can mean to people and how well it can go. After the game, you know, Wales fans and Ukrainian fans were swapping shirts in the stands as if they'd all been part of this memorable thing that they wanted to remember forever. And it, it just reminds you that soccer doesn't have to be scandal and fights and trouble. It can be the one thing that brings the world together. And it, and yesterday was as good an example of that as you will ever see. Wales will begin its World Cup by playing the United States on November 21st. 
And frankly, I think the U.S. is better off facing Wales than Ukraine at the start of the World Cup, but that's a separate conversation. Andrew Doss is the international sports editor for the New York Times. We will post the link to Andrew's excellent game story from Ukraine, Wales, on our show page. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, all. Coming up next, we'll talk about Oklahoma's run through the NCAA softball tournament. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about a decision by five Tampa Bay Rays players not to wear a pride flag on their uniforms, the explanation that they gave after, and whether the Rays should have gone through with the whole uniform thing when they couldn't get all of their players to agree to wear the flag. If you want to listen to that, you have to be a Slate Plus member, and you don't just get to hear bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts. You get no ads on any Slate podcast, you get unlimited reading on the Slate website, and you get the satisfaction of knowing and understanding that you support our work, this podcast. To sign up, go to slate.com slash hangupplus. That's slate.com slash hangupplus. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On Monday afternoon in Oklahoma City, the 56-2 Oklahoma softball team took the field, needing just one win to make it back to the Women's College World Series championship round for the fifth time in the last six tournaments. For a minute, it looked like they might not get that win. They lost to UCLA 7-3 in the first game of the day, but this is a double elimination tournament. And in game two, Oklahoma was definitely not eliminated. Jocelyn Allo, college softball's all-time home run queen, went four for four with two homers, including a grand slam, to lead her team to a 15 to nothing win. And it could have been worse. It was shortened to five innings because of softball's mercy rule. Joel, this was Oklahoma's 40th mercy rule victory of the season. As someone who appreciates a good ass-kicking, I'm guessing you love this team. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I love a dominant team. I mean, I guess with the exception of the 2007 Patriots and like the 2016 Warriors. Uh, and even then, you sort of admire and need them because that puts actual stakes on every game. Like, cause it, it, the fun is watching those teams lose, right? So my concern, having not watched softball, uh, this year, I have to admit, um, is that you hear so much about OU and you built them up and they're like, they seem unbeatable, even though they've only lost two, you know, they've, they've lost two games all season. So before the first game, um, you sort of see the randomness of the, you know, double elimination format, right? Where any player, any team can get hot and tilt the field for a few hours. And so UCLA jumps on the Sooners early and holds them off. And you're like, I know this isn't a reflection of what they've ac- accomplished already. 
but you can't help but wonder if, okay, they're a little overrated. Like, it, 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 by which I mean, we're saying that this is, some people are speculating that this is the best college athletic team in college sports history. And then they lose the first time I ever watched them. But in the second game, you see that, oh, actually, those people may have a legitimate claim to that. You know, just the dominance on the mound and at the plate, the woman on the mound is not their ace, but still somehow the nation's best pitcher, like has the nation's best ERA. So it's just, it was sort of like amazing to just watch everything that everybody had said sort of come together in one game. Because you obviously UCLA didn't advance to this, this point in the tournament by being a not good team. They're a very good team. And they still treated them like they were North Texas or like Middle Tennessee State or something like that. And I just remember like Stefan compiled this great list of statistics illuminating how great this team is and how they've been dominant all season. It's almost cartoonish. Um, you're like, no team could be that good. But then you watch the game and they are actually that good. They're like full of swagger too. I mean, the the pitcher in the first game who had been out for um, a few games, Jordy Ball, came back in after having some forearm um, issue uh, earlier in the season and was shut down after starting the season like 21 and one. Oh, I can't even remember. Um, and that lineup, I mean, you know, it's like basically like almost the entire lineup bats well over 300. And I think four of the top five players bat over 400. Jocelyn Allo after the 15, nothing four for four, 506 batting average, 32 homers, 82 RBIs, 1.16 slugging percentage, which probably is higher after the four for four. First player in NCAA history with three seasons of 30 or more home runs, 120 career home runs um, heading into this finals. I mean, you said it's cartoonish, and it kind of is. I mean, this team scored 540 runs in these 60 games, more than 100 runs more than the next team in the NCAA. They allowed 57 runs total. That's a 483-run <laughs> differential. And that's not including like nine or 10 full games worth of play that they didn't play because of all those mercy rule wins. So statistically, recruiting, dominance, it's hard to argue that, yeah, I don't know, you tell me if it's a better team that plays that many games in a season and has destroyed the competition as much as they have. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that can keep them down is this mercy rule. Would we have liked uh, UConn women's basketball to have been uh, held back by a rule that every time they were up by 30 points in the second half, you'd have to stop the game? Uh, it It is, I think, good for a sport particularly a sport that's not one of the, you know, top three or four in the country to have a dominant team like this. And you articulated it perfectly, mm -hmm. Joel, that every game becomes appointment viewing, both because you want to see them play up to their ability and you want to see, like in game one, that was super compelling watch to see UCLA, including Tom mm -hmm. Brady's niece, uh, kick their ass it, for, uh, you know, a, a very short period of time. But they played really well, and the UCLA players were clearly thrilled by this uh, accomplishment. Um, and college softball is clearly having a moment, and um, ESPN has invested a huge amount in broadcasting the College World Series from all the regional sites and now at um, the World Series in Oklahoma City. The amount of cameras, the amount of personnel on the scene, you've got uh, more than 10,000 fans in the stands. And Joel, I know you've, you've covered uh, 
softball back in your, um, you know, sports reporter days. And uh, I'm curious what you think of the growth of the sport, the increased popularity of sport, the record ratings. Is that something that you would have anticipated? Um, do you think that there's even more room to grow here? Yeah, I think that about most women's sports, because, you know, especially if you come up, you know, the, the old sports journalist way, right, where you have to cover volleyball or cover, uh, you know, w- women's basketball. And you like you see all the enthusiasm and you see the games and the competition and you're like, why isn't everybody kind of getting onto this? Um, and I, and actually, I, I, I realized I sort of lied a little bit earlier. I had watched a softball game earlier this year, the Florida State Clemson ACC final. Um, it was just on TV. The uniforms looked cool. The atmosphere looked great. And I was like, well, let me just, you know, just tune in. You know, sometimes you just want to see some competition. And yeah, the same things that we saw this afternoon, um, in the UCLA OU game are apparent in a lot of these games, like the talent is really good. Uh, the stakes, like that's the thing that always gets me, like the stakes. Um, you know, what you're going to be a champion or you're not, you're going to be eliminated or you're not. And so, yeah, I think that softball was due. Um, I will say that like, so, uh, I lived in Oklahoma and actually covered OU sports for a year, uh, in 2003, 2004. And it was already sort of a big deal by then. I believe that their softball program had already won a national championship. They were like sort of in the infancy of their dominance. Um, but it was nothing like this. But it, like Oklahoma was a place that clearly cared about it. Like they, it, Oklahoma's weird. They care about like wrestling and softball and like it's a few sports that like they just don't care about in other places. But it was like, oh man, you could easily see, um, you know, parents bringing their kids to one of these games and sort of falling in love with it. And yeah, and the, the only key after that is like coverage and like presenting it to people in such a way um, that they could digest it and really get into it. And what better way than to like, you know, have the female Babe Ruth, right? Or, um, you know, this dominant team that everybody has heard about. Like, that's the way that you sort of draw people in. I think that's kind of what's happened with you. It, you, you mentioned UConn, Josh, like UConn in, in, in women's basketball. I think it's the same thing. It's like, let me check this team out. Like, let's see how they, what's all this hype about? Um, and so, yeah, all it needed was more exposure. Um, and now they're getting it. And I think people that watch today should feel like, you know, that they're sort of in on something. Like, it's something that you should, you know, grab onto because it's really fun to watch. Well, and ESPN, you know, pays very little for all of the women's uh, NCAA programming. They bucket, they package all of that stuff. So we, as we discussed earlier, you know, even the the women's basketball tournament is part of this this package of all NCAA sports. And this is a sport that's demonstrating that when you invest, you get value out of it. Um, last year, the women's college World Series outperformed the men's baseball college World Series. Um, more than a million viewers for every game. Uh, Jason Gay wrote in the Wall Street Journal, and this kind of sums it up with its shorter games, snappier play, and packed compact stadiums. To say nothing of the amusing chatter from players on the field and in the dugout, college softball can hit like a double espresso next to baseball. And it really is fun to watch. And I, you know, I, I'm not going to say that this is appointment viewing for me, though I'm enjoying watching these games, but this is a, one of the sports that I will stop on and watch if I'm rolling through the ESPN family of channels. Um, and, it, and, and I won't do that with, like, college baseball. This is more entertaining. 
you know, the women seem to be having much more fun. They are more engaged in some ways. There is something about this smaller stadium, the 200-foot fences, um, the dominant pitchers, which some people argue is a detriment to the game, and they should maybe move the the pitching rubber back because of the dominance of a great pitcher. Um, But it is entertaining to watch. Um, These are, are engaging, fun games and, you know, watching Oklahoma, like you said, Joel, whether either to see if they're going to lose or to see if they're going to mercy rule someone is great sports. And UCLA beat Oklahoma in 2019. And, and that's the thing. They're not so great that they render these games, especially in the College World Series. I mean, the other three teams in the semifinals are the three teams that beat Oklahoma this year. And so there is... Yeah. Um, it's still competitive. And I think a lot of these run rule games show just sort of like, again, UConn playing when they've been in a weaker conference or playing out of conference. Mm-hmm. You know, there's maybe eight or 10 teams that can compete with them, but you have to fill out the whole schedule. Um, and and these, you know, programs like, like Oklahoma, like UConn, kind of develop their own gravity, um, both in terms of right. fans and in terms of recruits. Um, there's a lineage now at Oklahoma of these great players. It's not just Jocelyn Allo who came to, well, that's the example. She came from Hawaii to go to Oklahoma because that's where you go to play if you're really good at softball. Jordy Ball, the freshman phenom pitcher who has just like so much, it's just like ridiculous her, um, what she does on the mound kind of to celebrate every um, strikeout. But again, that's like what um, you guys are saying about this is a sport where playing the right way means what would be considered showing up your opponent in Major League Baseball, just like celebrating after basically you do anything that is even passably good. And it makes the game more fun. You have these chants in the dugout. You have it, It's a sport where um, everyone kind of errs on the side of over-exuberance as opposed to under-exuberance. And like, what's not to enjoy about yeah. that? Yeah, I mean, everybody, basically like everybody's a defensive back, right? Where everybody's a defensive back that's broken up a pass, <laughs> you know? Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, like, like she celebrates every strikeout. Like, she's never struck anyone out before. And you look at the stats, like, you've actually struck out 8 million people. But softball is a, is a super, super interesting sport to me because I am on the side of people who think that it's like fundamentally broken, that it's just like the pitching is way too dominant um, unless you're Jocelyn mm-hmm. Allo or, or these Oklahoma players. I mean, that's why it's so interesting that, that they're able to transcend in a sport where pitchers, um, and like these ERAs that the Oklahoma pitchers have, like under one, that's like not uncommon. Like a great pitcher at any program will have just a ridiculous ERA. Yeah, I mean, until until the first game on Monday, the three starters for Oklahoma yeah. all had ERAs under one. And, like, the bases are, like, too close together. It just, like, doesn't quite work. It's interesting, too. <laughs> our friend uh, Dave Epstein, one of the, the, the really interesting anecdotes at the start of the sports gene is Ginny Finch pitching to Barry Bonds and striking him out, um, which is just it gives you an indication of, like, how difficult it is. Like, somebody that is as good and as technically proficient as Barry Bonds still couldn't touch, like, the top softball pitcher and that's like just imagine you know random softball player from kent state going up against you know (laughs) somebody right well that he was making a point about perception and like how um because barry bonds could a 100 mile per hour fastball it's just like not being used to the way that softball softball pitchers throw um but your points the the, i I still uh, take the point but um 
I, I guess the question that I have about this, Stefan, is like th- this comes up with WNBA, for instance. It's been around for so long at this point. At, at what point do you say the ratings are what are what they are? Or if you create a kind of spectacle, if you invest in this way, like how much meat is, is there like left on the bone? I mean, college gymnastics is the A number one example of a sport that's been undercapitalized, mm-hmm. under-televised, where, I mean, it just should have been obvious to everyone, like gymnastics are hugely, hugely popular. Um, but I, I wonder what you think, Stefan, about like, is softball an example that there there is, like I said, a lot of meat on the bone with a lot of these sports? Or um, are, are we, and is that only true for some sports and not others? Well, I think there's meat on the bone because, again, this has all been undervalued. The ESPN deal with the NCAA drastically undervalued basketball, and it undervalued gymnastics, and it undervalued softball. Um, Oklahoma is breaking ground on a $30 million stadium for the softball team. Um, you said these programs sort of create their own gravity, and that's the example of it. I mean, the Oklahoma's recruiting is clearly better than everybody else's by some small margin because UCLA just beat them, Texas beat them, Oklahoma State beat them. It is possible to win. And if you if you assemble a team with three great pitchers, you know, you can you can beat anybody um, and and be consistent over the course of a season that way. But what I think it shows is that meat on the bone, sure, more people are watching this the this tournament in Oklahoma City has become like a central part of the sports culture of that city. Um, they've sort of adopted it as their own. And the, 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 the investment that ESPN makes creates that gravity or contributes to it. Um, you know, ESPN's got like 200 people in Oklahoma City working on these broadcasts, um, like seven times as many as they had 15 or 20 years ago when they started doing this. I mean, the, 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 they're treating this like it is a, you know, not filler programming of the kind that we used to expect from ESPN, but as sort of central programming, 120 microphones in the stadium, 40 cameras up from five. They've got a drone and a zip line and a, and a booth with three announcers and someone on the sidelines. I mean, this demonstrates that they believe this is, this is worth investing in. And that is the, you know, that's the, the t- most telling factor here. There were games on ABC on network TV, which is a big deal, Joel. I mean, that, for the first time, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, like the thing that comes to mind for me, it's like, wow, they're investing in this, like it was the Little League World Series. Like all of that <laughs> stuff that you talked about and like ESPN blowing it out, it being on ABC. Right. Like that's like Joel, like, like they treated the Little League World Series like it was a huge, epic sporting event, like way before they did the Women's College World Series. Oh, yeah. I mean, because of the presumptions that people have made about the audience out there for, for women's sports. And it, like, yeah, I think if we're talking about like we've kept the audience here, that's probably true for a lot of the men's sports. But like the women's sports, we just have no idea. Uh, mm-hmm. They've not been. Well, yeah, I mean, men's sports, a lot of the audience, the ratings are dwindling, at least on linear television. Yeah. I mean, was, I mean, I don't want to shit on college baseball, but I mean, when was the last time? You sit down and watch college baseball. Um, I'm sure there are people that have done it, but I, you know, I, I think the, the the problem that that sport has is that there's another level of baseball that we know is better than that, right? Um, women's college softball is the best softball in the world for the most part, and like you know, I guess outside of international play, 
And so are people, you, you put it in front of people and people are going to want to see it. And I just, you know, I mean, this is going to sound dumb, and, and but maybe people will feel me. When you turn on and you watch the uniforms and stuff, like I just, I'm a person that's like really visual. And, um, you know, you see UCLA's beautiful blues, you know, and I'm like, oh shit, let me just stop. I'm just, just catch that for a second. I think the reason I stopped and watched Florida State and Clemson was Clemson had on their orange, right? Um, so that kind of stuff is just putting it in front of people and giving them an opportunity to see if they like it is like the key here. But, you know, you have to want to do it and thank goodness that they're starting. But I guess we'll see if like there's a real commitment. I mean, the, the disconnect with softball is different, I think, from the disconnect with basketball. And maybe this is a transitional thing, but there have been pro uh, women's fast pitch leagues for a long time, none of which have succeeded. Most have been like sort of games in one place with the teams gathering. Softball was kicked out of the Olympics. Um, it's not going to be in the Olympics in Paris in 2024. So this is a sport that has sort of seesawed in terms of its universal acceptance. Um, and the, you know, wh what will Jocelyn Allo do after this season? Presumably she's going to play. There's a new league starting. Um, but will she, you know, will the great college softball players, particularly in the day of NIL, are they going to be the ones that are the superstars in this sport? Or is their growth beyond the college game, particularly if it gets back in the Olympics? which I assume it will be in, in when, when the Olympics are in L.A. Well, Jocelyn Allo came back. She got an extra year, like every NCAA athlete did um, because of COVID. So um, she chose to use that that year. And she sells Home Run Queen t-shirts. And she has like a deal with a car dealership in Oklahoma. I mean, this is a, a great example of someone who deserves to be paid. I mean, look at everything that she's done for her school and her sport. It's just tough to get people to care about anything like they care about college athletics because there is a there's a mm -hmm. hook right there. Like I know Oklahoma, maybe I root for Oklahoma or whatever, but it's like USFL or XFL or any of these other leagues that are out there. It just takes a long time to develop, you know, brand familiarity and all that other stuff, brand recognition, and like you know, there's just too many other options right now. I just don't, you know, I. I, I think the options for professional softball or professional anything else in this country are probably pretty, pretty bleak at this point. But, you know, I would I would like to see it would be great if she could make money playing the game. But as if the audience for college softball continues to grow and the numbers on ESPN were up like 16 percent this year, um, that's going to lead to more. I mean, the you know, we made you know, 30 years ago. Before the WNBA, you would have said that, oh, women's professional basketball, you know, there's been a bunch of leagues, they've failed, there's no staying power. And now we're at a point where there's not only growth, but demand that these players get treated and paid in a, in a, in a serious way. set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened. In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. 
we became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for amazing sports stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. And now it is time for After Balls, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. <laughs> we mentioned that uh, Jocelyn Allo hit her 120th career home run for Oklahoma on Monday at the uh, College Softball World Series. That broke a record of another Oklahoma softball player, Lauren Chamberlain. She played for the Sooners from 2012 to 2015. She hit 95 homers. I did a little math. Uh, Joel, you mentioned Babe Ruth. When Babe Ruth retired in 1935 with 714 home runs, second on the list was Lou Gehrig. He had 378 at the time, so Ruth had 88% more home runs than Gehrig. Allo, just like 25% more homers than Lauren Chamberlain. But 25% is a lot more home runs in a short career in college sports. Lauren Chamberlain went on to play pro softball. We mentioned the new professional league. It's called Women's Professional Fast Pitch. Lauren Chamberlain is the commissioner. It is to start this month. Josh, what's your Lauren Chamberlain? It is time for one of my occasional dispatches from the exciting world of professional tennis. And the theme that I would like to explore today is inevitability or the lack thereof. In 2019, when she was 15 years and four months old, Coco Goff became the youngest player ever to make it through the Wimbledon qualifying draw. In the first round, she beat the oldest player in the draw, Venus Williams, who was also one of her idols. She made it all the way to the fourth round in that event before losing to the great Simona Halep, marking herself as one of the most impressive phenoms in a sport that builds them up and tears them down extremely regularly. Hello, Emma Raducanu. Um, Coco did nothing to diffuse that hype as the year went on of 2019. She made the third round of the U.S. Open, and she also became the youngest player to win a tournament since 2004. Since then, she's had a huge amount of double success, and she's won an additional singles title. But going into the French Open, she'd still never gone past the fourth round in a Grand Slam. I'm going to use that word still again because she is still just 18. Three years after she was the youngest player at Wimbledon, she was still the second youngest player in the draw at the French Open this month. She actually took high school graduation photos in Paris, posing with her cap and gown and diploma by the Eiffel Tower. And so it's absurd to say that she'd done anything wrong or that the arc of her young career has in any way been disappointing. But it is true that she hasn't taken the elevator straight to the top floor of professional tennis. There is, though, one player who has done exactly that, and that is Poland's Iga Świątek. Świątek didn't actually earn the world's number one ranking, which is funny to say now. Uh, it was handed to her a few months ago when Ash Barty shockingly retired after winning the Australian Open. But ever since then, Iga, who turned 21 last week, has been on a ridiculous uh, run. She won every tournament, every match, and every set that she has played in. She entered the French on a 28-match winning streak that started in February. It seemed kind of inevitable that she was going to get her second major, having won the French for the first time in 2020 when she was unranked and little known. And it seemed even more inevitable after the third round when she was the only one of the top 10 seeds that were still left in the draw, but still lurking out there was, yes, Coco Goff. 
Coco got gifted a pretty easy draw. She had to play only one seated player, number 31, Elise Mertens. But she did beat the former French Open finalist Sloane Stevens, and she also did not drop a set. I shouldn't say also. Uh, Sviantec did drop a set. Um, Coco didn't drop a set in pretty much cruising to her first ever major final. Actually, the biggest headlines that she made came when she wrote Peace and Gun Violence on a courtside camera after one of those matches. Um, Sviatek, like I said, did lose one set on her way to the final, but she was playing with her usual power and precision. She dominated uh, with a forehand that is far and away the best shot in the women's game right now. And in Saturday's final, um, it wasn't just the forehand. It was every shot. Um, She just completely controlled the match. Coco didn't play up to her usual standard, and it was a 6-1, 6-3 storyline. Um, you know, in fairness to Coco, it was pretty much a similar storyline uh, and scoreline as every Sviantec match for the last four months. Um, and before we get back to Coco, Iga, I should say, is just impossible to hate. Um, just seems like a lovely, uh, genuine, grounded person. She's continued to wear a Ukrainian flag ribbon after other players have stopped. And not just that, she has talked about how she has continued to wear a Ukrainian flag ribbon while other players have stopped. She speaks out against the war at every possible opportunity, obviously being in Poland that's taken in a huge amount of refugees. She has a personal connection there, um, but she spoke about it in her victory speech and her press conference. And she's also just got kind of an impish quality. Uh, My favorite moment from the uh, victory ceremony was when she removed the tiny lid from her winner's trophy as if to see if there was something inside the cup there was not, sadly, but maybe they can put some like fondue in there next time to surprise her. But back to Coco, um, after the match, she cried a whole lot in her chair during the speech in a post-match interview um, she did with NBC's Maria Taylor. She said something amazing in that interview, which is that what she took away from the tournament is, and I quote, honestly, that I could do it. For a while, I really believed that I couldn't do it. Two years ago, in a blog post for um, Behind the Racket, Noah Rubin's project, we've had Noah on the show before, um, Coco said that she'd experienced depression and stress in her career. This is when she was 16. Her father later emphasized that she'd never been diagnosed with depression, um, but regardless, the pressure and expectations had clearly weighed on her, despite the fact, or maybe because of the fact, that she's still so, so young. And now, if you want to add another superlative, the youngest person to make a Grand Slam final since Maria Sharapova in 2004. My takeaway from the tournament and from the last three years, really, is that she's one of the most well-adjusted prodigies that the sport has ever produced. She's kind of reminiscent of Venus and Serena in that way. She talks very sincerely about how results on the court don't define her. And she said something pretty moving about how the people who she loves will love her no matter what those results are. But she works in a results-based business, and that tests um, even the healthiest point of view constantly. Everybody except Iga Sviantek loses at every tournament. You're constantly being told you're not good enough. And every inevitable champion, even the ones like Naomi Osaka, Bianca Andreescu, Sofia Kinnan, the ones who've won Grand Slam titles very recently, inevitably gets knocked down at some point by injuries, by fatigue, by the mental strain of just trying to survive in the sport um, and in the media glare. And so that is really the, the only inevitable thing in tennis, which is that the sport will put you through the ringer. And that goes for Iga Sviantek too. She said she almost quit the sport when she was 15. 
She's traveled, and this is fascinating, um, with a full-time sports psychologist since 2019, when she was nowhere near the top of the rankings. This wasn't a thing that once she started earning a lot of money, she's like, I'm going to invest in this. Um, the Times' as Matthew Futterman wrote about the psychologist in 2021. Her name is Daria Abramowicz. She's a former competitive sailor. Um, she says that she talks a lot about positive and destructive passions. Um, she said, quote, you go for the best, but at the end of the day, you're human and you have other aspects to your life. And it doesn't mean when you lose your match, you're less worthy as a human being, which is not a bad message probably to have in your ear every week. They apparently have lunch together every day. And so that's uh, the women's side, by the way, the most inevitable man in tennis and in all of sports uh, for the last 15 years, Rafael Nadal won his 14th French Open and 22nd overall major title on Sunday. But if you've been listening to him, you'll know it was maybe the least inevitable title of his career. He had to take injections in his chronically injured left foot to make it through the event. And when I say injection, you might be thinking like a cortisone shot. This was local anesthetic. He described it as like at the dentist when you can't feel your tooth. Um, speaking of destructive passions, he said repeatedly that he, quote, couldn't go on like this and that it's more important to him at this stage to have a foot he can use for the rest of his life than to rack up more titles. He did say that he'll try to play Wimbledon in a couple weeks, but it is not inevitable that he'll be at the French next year or that he'll honestly be at any tournament at any time. And the cliche here, um, Joel and Stefan, is like, appreciate him while you can. We might not be able to appreciate him, but it might all be in the past tense. So I hope that we appreciated him while we could. But he's a guy that's known again, maybe more than anybody in sports for on a kind of micro and micro, macro and micro level, never giving up. And to hear him talk about maybe it's time for me to give up was um, a really striking message at this tournament. And that doesn't surprise me, Josh, too much, because I've always felt that, you know, Nadal, particularly in um, moments of real genuine candor, particularly when he's able to speak Spanish. I remember that documentary about him and Federer from a few years ago. Um, where he was just so clear-eyed and so genuine and so honest that I think facing his sports life mortality is something that I've thought would go well. Like, he will actually handle this in kind of the way we're seeing. Like, he wanted to persevere and do everything he could to win this title. And when it comes time, this is a guy who's going to say, I want to be able to walk when I'm 45 or 55 or 65 and 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 leave maybe, you know, who could say sooner than expected? I mean, he and Federer are, you know, he's what, 36, 36. Josh, 37? Um, and this, in any other era, the, his career would have ended a long time ago. Yeah, it's... Um it's interesting that you and you also talk about the idea of like inevitability because your yeah, sports is weird in that way, right? Like we thought Serena Williams was absolutely going to get 24, right? And I mean, maybe it'll happen, but it doesn't quite seem like that's ever going to happen. We thought Tiger was going to surpass mm -hmm. Jack Nicholson. It didn't quite happen. And that sports is really hum. It, it should be good for humbling. Like what we think we know about sports, um, that we, you know, this is going to be the next big thing. This person is going to dominate forever. This team is going to have a dynasty. And we find out over and over again that um, sports is extremely competitive and the people at the very top are insane. And people also bodies are very fragile and time goes by really fast. And it never quite unfolds in quite the way you think it's going to. So, um, you yeah, know, maybe Coco Golf will get that 
you know, Grant, you know, we'll, we'll win one. But I mean, there's nothing saying that it ever has to happen. Um, I, yeah, who, I'm trying to think who is it? Like Monica Sellers. Like that's just another person I think of that who was going to be the next great person in it. I mean, like the way her career kind of came to an end was just so bizarre. Which when you, when you step like two feet back and you realize what we've had in tennis for the last two decades yeah. with Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, and Serena, and Venus to some extent, she's still trying to play from time to time at the age of 42, is truly astounding. One of the kind of more under-reported or undersold stories in all of sports is that, and Ben Rothenberg was tweeting about this, Serena told everyone that she wasn't going to announce her retirement when she retired. And it seems like she's maybe retired now. She's not injured at Wimbledon, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. hasn't played um, in a year. Um, she could come back. She's 40. But um, she's, you know, kind of been trying to fade away, maybe. Some people want a big pomp and, and to-do, and, and some people don't. And so... And some people want to do the Coach K, you know, farewell tour. <laughs> and some people... But she may never play again in a competitive match. Um, it seems like Nadal probably will, but he might not. Federer is trying to come back. He may or, or may not. We're, we're just at, at this moment where um, we, we may or may not see any of these guys. That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.